What happens after we die? Is there a beyond to go into? Or is heaven a myth, a fantasy story that we want to believe in so that we can find some comfort when we face the evil and the suffering and the bereavement that we see in this world? And if it does exist, where exactly is it? And what does it look like? You know, it's not hard to understand where we get our ideas from heaven from. In fact, the clue's kind of in the name, isn't it? Heaven, the heavens. The sky is so very different from the earth, and for ancient people, it must have been filled with even more wonder than it fills us with today, with the wonders of science, technology, flight. It must have seemed so intangible and ethereal, so removed from the physical earth on which we stand and live and suffer and die. The sky is filled with light at night, splendidly alive and beautiful. It certainly looks like the kind of place God would dwell, far away from the clamor of war between the people of the earth, removed from the illnesses that plague us and the many threats that lead to our inevitable death and decomposition. But is that all the heavens are? A distraction from the physical world, a dream of a different reality without the miseries we face during our fleeting lives on earth? Is death the final release of the spirit from the physical realm into the spirit world? Or is that just a myth that we tell ourselves? Do we simply remain in the silence of the grave or is there a danger of something worse? Instead of ascending to the heavens and joining God, do our souls descend to a place of deep darkness, another realm of the dead? Suffering and injustice in this life make us ask questions about reward and punishment, both of which seems to be elusive in the here and now. Is there a place of punishment and reward after we die? And how can we know? You know, for thousands, of pe for, for thousands of years, people have speculated about where we go after we die. But even those of us who do believe that there is a heaven have to admit that among the living, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, those are the words of Paul, one of the earliest leaders of the Christian church, and the author of many books in the New Testament part of the Bible. Yet he's actually paraphrasing the words of an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah, who wrote these sentiments hundreds of years before Paul was even born. That's not to say God hasn't revealed anything about what he's preparing. I just want to clarify that if you're expecting all of the deep mysteries of exactly what heaven is going to be like, you're in for disappointment, because I don't actually know. But... Isaiah did write a massive book in the Old Testament in which he gives sneak peeks of what was to come. In Isaiah chapter 65 verses 17 to 19, we read the following words. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight for its people. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. So what did Isaiah mean by a new heaven and a new earth? Did he mean an entirely new construct, something that he made that was completely different from the heaven and earth that already existed? Or does new kind of mean renewed, a, a new in the sense that it's not the same because God takes what is broken and he fixes it? The truth is, it, it's hard to tell exactly what he meant. It's difficult to interpret prophecy correctly at the best of times. But it's even more complicated when even a single word like new could mean two very different things. And things become significantly harder when you suddenly find yourself in a set of circumstances that suggest a prophet 
maybe spoke things that, that you thought you understood, but your circumstances now suggest you didn't. You know, when the rubber hits the road, and you find yourself trying to wrestle with today's big questions, trying to make sense of the words of ancient prophets can lead to all kinds of wild ideas emerging. We all tend to read and interpret the writing of other people through the lens of our own experience. For example, apocalyptic literature is a genre of literature that emerged and died out during the 400-year period between the Old and the New Testaments, and it emerged as Jewish people were trying to reinterpret the writings of their prophets in the face of ongoing suffering and persecution. During that period of time, Israel was invaded and conquered by the Roman Empire, and Jerusalem was occupied by Roman soldiers and administered by Roman governors. It was hardly the city of joy that Isaiah had predicted all those years ago. And the Jewish people were confused. They made the age-old mistake of trying to interpret prophecies by current events rather than by trying to understand the events during which those prophetic words were written. But just so we understand a little about this weird genre of literature that existed for that 400-year period, here are some characteristics of apocalyptic literature. There were new revelations and visions rather than new prophecies. There were fantasy stories reimagining how prophecy could be fulfilled in dramatic ways. There was a heavy use of symbolism, especially fictional creatures like dragons, for example, and special numbers that had specific meanings. There was a rewriting of history from a theological point of view rather than a chronological point of view like we see it today. And all of this happened because God felt distant, removed from the difficult circumstances faced by faithful believers. And his promises of bringing about renewal of all things no longer seemed simple to understand or place hope in. Maybe you can relate. Maybe the world you live in today has got you down and has stripped away much of your faith. Maybe you still believe in God, but you aren't sure what to believe about the Bible and its sometimes fantastic sounding claims, especially with regard to things like heaven. Or maybe you've spent a considerable amount of time studying the words of prophets with a keen eye on current events, always looking for signs of their true meaning and fulfillment in our world today. Maybe you're in danger of doing what the Jewish people did between the Testaments, reinterpreting ancient words by current events. You know, according to the prophets of the Jewish people, the Messiah would bring about peace and justice on earth. But how exactly that would happen is an issue of contention, an issue that led some people to follow Jesus as the Messiah and some to reject him. And it's here, folks, it's here where Christians should focus their attention when trying to understand the Bible's teaching on heaven. And if you're not a Christian, then I just want you to hear this. This is, this is what we believe. This is why we focus on heaven and the meaning, the true and the central meaning of heaven. It's the part where Jesus enters the story that changed everything. The coming of Jesus, the Son of God, into the physical realm in which we dwell. The Bible refers to him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus consistently taught that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He told John the Baptist that the healing miracles that people witnessed him doing were signs that demonstrated that he was the Messiah. A new kingdom had begun to be established on earth. A place where the authority of God was seen in the way Jesus taught and in the incredible miracles that he did. Yet, whilst all of this started to take place, 
John the Baptist was imprisoned and later killed. And of course we know that the same thing happened to Jesus. Now he was murdered and then he was raised from the dead to new life, showing that death was not the end, but not everyone who had died was brought back to life. And so there's this kind of tension that we find in the New Testament between things that are already happening and things that are not yet happening. And the hope that Jesus left his disciples was the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in the midst of this imperfect world and a never-ending commitment to be with his people in the face of great suffering and injustice. They were about to face massive persecution. Disciples would be scattered across the region as they fled for their lives. Some would be arrested. Many would be martyred and killed. But something had changed. Not all of the prophecies about heaven and a new earth had come to pass, but enough had been fulfilled by Jesus to give validity to the belief that God was still working out his plans for his people. You see, God had demonstrated in Jesus his commitment to dwell tangibly with his people through thick and thin. The hope of heaven was reignited because of the continuing presence and goodness of God, even in the midst of the mess of this world. John one of Jesus' closest disciples, was struck by God's love and commitment. And even while he himself was incarcerated on the island prison of Patmos, God's presence was with him through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gave him a vision of encouragement that, pro that God's promises did not need to be reinterpreted in the kind of pessimistic or fatalistic way that the apocalyptic writers had tried to do between the Testaments. He gave John a prophecy that built on Isaiah's thoughts which John was then able to write down in a letter of encouragement for Christians facing increasing persecution. He recorded what he saw and heard through the Holy Spirit. And this is what he had to say about heaven. Then I, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now I just want to start off by admitting that these words are part of a very complicated book to read and to interpret. The book of Revelation spans at least three different literary genres, each with different rules for interpretation. It's part apocalyptic literature, which was created in that 400 period between the Testaments. And you can see that in some of the, the very interesting symbols and creatures that appear in it. It's part prophetic, which is different from apocalyptic literature, speaking to God's people from God. And it's part letter. John trying to encourage Christians who were scattered all over the place because of persecution. So it's a complex book. And the details can so easily confuse us, 
unless we remember the context that unified all three of those situations. Isaiah's prophecy during a time of great suffering, the apocalypse writers during the 400 years of conflict and loss, and the writings of John while imprisoned as Christian persecution really ramped up. You see, when you look at the original context of these words, the style of writing starts to make more sense. And the big picture message of Revelation is actually very simple. It's not a book simply predicting what will happen in the future. It's primarily a book about how to live with faith, hope and perseverance in the imperfect world that we currently inhabit. Revelation isn't meant to furnish us with loads of details of future events and to tell us exactly what heaven is going to look like. It's meant to encourage us to interpret today's difficult events according to the promises of God rather than interpreting the promises of God according to today's events. It's meant to help us to find hope in the presence and the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of life's storms, harsh opposition and injustice. It's there to remind us that God hasn't abandoned us and good will win over evil in the end. How do we know? Because God came to earth and he dwelt among us. Rather than making vague and removed promises of a future where there will be no more mourning or pain, he actually felt our suffering himself and was killed and buried as a man. His resurrection from the dead was a demonstration of what he had always promised that all of his people will one day experience a life set free from the power of evil and death. You know, with all of the metaphors that are going on in Revelation, they're actually trying to tell us a simple story that one day evil will be conquered. One day we will experience the fullness of what it means to have God dwelling with us. You know, Jesus' body was made new, just as the heavens and the earth are promised to one day be made new. It's an incredible, incredible promise. Excuse me one moment, my teleprompter just broke. <laughs> and we're back. An incredible promise that brings us incredible hope. But until that happens, know this. The dividing lines between heaven and earth have been blurred by God coming to be with us in the here and now. Whilst you can look forward to the completeness of his promises, to the day where there is no suffering or mourning or pain, his spirit can bring you hope and strength that you need for today's storms. God is with you. Heaven is near. So take heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we may not know the wonders that you have prepared for us. We may not know exactly what heaven is going to be like, but we know one thing. Your presence will be with your people forever. And we know another thing because of Jesus. We know that your presence is already with us. That the kingdom has started to be established on earth. That even in this world we can see a glimpse of the heaven that is promised. And we see that glimpse in God with us in Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. In the midst of our suffering and pain. We can have hope because God has not abandoned us. God has given us a picture through Jesus. That one day death will fully be conquered and mourning will end. That one day the pain that we experienced, the pain that he experienced will be no more because we will see resurrection in its fullness. 
We may not know exactly what that looks like, but all of the pictures point to the joy of being in your presence and the end of evil and suffering forever. And so let that hope sit in our hearts. As we face the trials that we face today, let us know that you are with us always to the very end of time and that we have good things to look forward to. Lord, bring us comfort when we grieve. Bring us strength and hope in the face of a world that sometimes looks like it just can't get any better because it just keeps getting worse. Help us to remember your promises and not to judge them by what we see in today's events as if today's events determined your faithfulness because you are faithful no matter what is going on. And one day we will see that faithfulness in all of its fullness. And we look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen.